Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday on YouTube and all podcast streaming services and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are discussing an unsolved case, which I feel like we have not done in quite some time. I feel like as of lately, we've been covering solved cases, even some survival story cases, but we haven't covered an unsolved case in a while. And I came across this case several weeks ago, and it has stuck with me ever since. And that's why I wanted to bring it to your guys' attention to see what you thought about it because I'm absolutely stumped on this one. And this is a very frustrating case because here we are over 20 years from when this case first began and we still have just as many, if not more questions now than we did back then. So I'm very interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Now, because we are talking about an unsolved case, I do want to start off by talking about the physical description of the person that we are talking about. So the person that we are talking about today is a man named Joshua Guimond. And at the time of his disappearance, Josh was 5'11 and about 175 pounds. He had blonde hair and blue eyes and a vertical scar on his right shoulder. He was last seen on the St. John's campus in Collegeville, Minnesota, wearing blue jeans and a gray St. John's hoodie sweatshirt. So that is your physical description of what Josh looks like. And I will have all of the links in the description box below in regards to tip lines and places where you can submit information if you do know something. So now let's move on with the rest of the case. Joshua Guimond was born on June 18th, 1982 to his parents, Lisa and Brian. He was born and raised in a town called Maple Lake, located in Minnesota, and growing up, Josh was always the studious kid. He put his schoolwork and studies before most things in life, and is really where his priorities lied. And everyone to this day, when talking about Josh, talks about how smart he is, how intellectual he is, how much he was going to accomplish and succeed in his life. In his sophomore year of high school, Josh started dating a girl named Katie Benson. They dated all throughout high school, and by the time they were seniors in high school, Katie was the class treasurer and Josh was the senior class president. Katie said that to people who saw Josh from the outside, they wouldn't expect him to have the fun-loving, goofy, outgoing side that he did because he always came off so serious and confident. But according to Josh's closest family and friends, he was very outgoing. He was very easy to get along with. He was very social. He had a lot of friends. But again, to the outside world, to the people who were just kind of looking in on his life, he definitely portrayed a very studious and serious side. He actually received the most likely to succeed senior superlative at his high school. Do you guys remember when you get to like being seniors in high school and it's like most likely to be famous or most likely to take home to mom, like things like that? His was most likely to succeed. 
And from the time he was a kid all the way up into his college years, Josh had told everyone that his dream was to become a lawyer. Throughout his childhood, he was always questioning things. He always wanted to know why things were the way that they were. And Josh's friends and family had said that had his disappearance never had occurred, Josh more than likely would be in the running for the presidential election. He was going to be a lawyer and then a politician and eventually run for being the president of the United States. Now, Josh graduated high school in the year 2000, which also meant that his girlfriend, Katie, also graduated high school in the year 2000. And instead of ending their relationship, they decided they wanted to continue dating. They decided that they didn't want to do, you know, the long distance thing. They weren't interested in having a long distance relationship, but they also didn't want to go to the same exact school on the same exact campus. So what they ended up doing is Josh decided that he was going to attend St. John's University. St. John's is located in Collegeville, Minnesota, and it is a small private school located on hundreds of acres. So while the school itself may be small, the surface area is very large. Now, St. John's University is an all-male school, and St. John's has a sister university called St. Benedict's. And so Josh was accepted and enrolled into St. John's University, and Katie enrolled into St. Benedict's, which was the all-girls university. And even though they were two separate colleges, they actually still had some conjoining classes where they would integrate the boys and the girls. There were certain classes that would integrate the St. John students and the St. Benedict students. So Katie and Josh did have some classes together, even though they technically went to two different schools. There was actually a pathway that would connect St. John's to St. Benedict's. So students would be able to walk back and forth to different campuses dependent on what their class schedule looked like. And it was also perfect for them on a social level as well, because after they went to their classes, after they were done for the day, they were still able to see each other and hang out after classes, go to the same social events. So it really seemed to be the best case scenario. Now, when Josh enrolled into St. John's, it was really no surprise to anyone when he joined the mock trial team. I told you guys earlier that Josh wanted to be a lawyer. That was his dream. That was his goal. And what better way to get a head start than by joining the mock trial team? And this was something that Josh took incredibly seriously. He was at every meeting. He was always on time. He was always prepared and he was always ready to debate. Now, mock trial is also where Josh ended up meeting some of his closest friends and his social circle, which included one of his friends named Nick, who would ultimately become Josh's roommate his junior year of college. Now, Nick is one year older than Josh, so he was a senior while Josh was a junior. However, the two of them decided to move into an apartment together with some of their other friends during Josh's junior year at St. John's. Like I mentioned, they lived in an apartment on campus with several other roommates at what was called the St. Mauer House, which was located in the central, more middle part of campus. So that is the backstory that leads us to Saturday, November 9th of 2002. 
Earlier that day, Josh and Nick had gotten brunch together, and while they were getting food, they actually ended up getting a text from Katie asking if the two of them wanted to come over later that night and hang out with her and her other roommates. Now, earlier that day, Josh had also received a different invitation to go over to a friend's apartment of his to go and play some poker. So a friend was having like a poker kickback, small gathering at their apartment and invited Josh to go. And when Josh got the invite from Katie and after weighing out his options, he decided that he still wanted to go to the poker party that night. Now that may seem a little bit odd to you. However, I think it is very important to note that at this time, Josh and Katie were actually separated. It had been several months since they had separated and decided to continue their relationship as friends. The two of them had been dating for years and years at that point. They had grown up together. They had known each other their entire lives, and they were just out of point in their lives where they wanted to experience what else was out there and just experience a different sense of independence that they hadn't had before. So that had happened several months prior to this. So now you can hopefully understand why Josh would not jump on the idea to go over to Katie's apartment that night. And so he decided that he was going to go to the poker party instead. However, Nick decided that he was going to pass on the poker party and instead go over to Katie's apartment. So Josh was going to be at the poker party. Nick was going to Katie's later that night, and those were their plans for their Saturday evening. And at around 7 o'clock p.m., Nick had left his and Josh's apartment to go over and see Katie and her roommates. At the time that he left the apartment, Nick said that Josh was sitting on the couch with about one or two other friends of his playing some video games. And when Nick left, he said his goodbyes to Josh and his friends before walking out the door. Now, a couple hours later in the early morning hours of Sunday, November 10th, around 2 a.m., Nick said that is when he arrived back to the apartment. However, when he got back, he realized that Josh was not home yet. At first, Nick said that it didn't really strike him as odd. He wasn't too concerned. He thought it was very possible that Josh was still at the party. It was a Saturday night on a college campus, so it's not absurd to think that someone wouldn't be home at that time, especially if they were going out that night. However, Nick said that when he woke up the next morning and noticed that Josh still wasn't in his room, that is when the worry started to trickle in. And things started to get even more serious for Nick when he noticed that Josh missed the mock trial debate that the team was holding that Sunday. So the mock trial team had a debate planned for the morning of Sunday, November 10th. And knowing Josh, knowing how important this always was to him, Nick figured that there was no way that Josh was going to miss this meeting. He was prepared for it. He had been talking about it for days. He knew that Josh was going to be there. And so when he showed up to the meeting and Josh still was not there, that's when he knew something was very wrong. So after the meeting at around two o'clock, Nick ended up calling Katie. When he called Katie, he asked her if she had heard from Josh or seen Josh at all. 
but she told Nick that she had not spoken to him. When Nick informed Katie that he missed the mock trial meeting, that is when Katie started to get really worried because again, anyone who knew Josh knew that he was not going to miss that meeting. Josh's friends got together and ended up telling the dean of students that Josh was missing. And at about 10.30 on Sunday, November 10th, Josh's mom received a phone call from the dean of students letting her know that Josh had not been seen since the night before and that she needed to file a missing persons report. Lisa ended up making that 911 call at 11.42 p.m. and police arrived to Josh's apartment early the following morning to check and see if there was anything that they could find to give them a hint to his whereabouts. When walking into his room, some of the items that police found were Josh's keys, his wallet, his glasses, and his contact case. Finding these items gave police the indication that more than likely, Josh did not just up and leave and he was planning on returning home. This wasn't the case of someone who had just walked out on his life and didn't plan on returning. His car was still in the parking lot where Josh had parked it last, and police just knew that if Josh was planning an escape plan to run away, he would bring these belongings with him. He would bring his glasses or his contacts, or he would have packed a small bag of clothes, but that just wasn't the case here. So police started talking to some of Josh's friends in order to get a timeline of what had happened on the 9th. And this is the timeline that they were able to come up with. At 11 p.m. on November 9th, Josh and his two friends, Alex and Greg, left Josh's apartment to go to the poker party, which was being held at an apartment about a five-minute walk away. I told you earlier how Josh's apartment was more central and in the middle of campus, but this party was being held at an apartment in the Metten Court Complex. This is also an on-campus apartment complex, but just more on the northern border of campus. Six minutes later, at 11.06 p.m., Josh's keycard was used to get back into his apartment, which according to his friends was Josh just going back in to grab a couple more drinks to take with them. Josh and his friends got to the party at approximately 11.30. There were only about 10 to 12 people at this party, and according to the people who attended, some of them knew Josh, but some were just seeing him for the first time. It was a college gathering, and if you've ever been to one of those, you know that typically when you go to a party, when you go to a kickback, something like that, it's likely that you're not going to know everyone there or you may know of some people. So that was pretty much the case here. Some people knew Josh, some people knew of Josh, and some people just didn't know Josh at all. And this was the first time they were seeing him. Now, according to the people who had interacted with Josh or just seen him that night, they said that nothing seemed off about his behavior. He seemed to be having a really good time. He was having a lot of fun. He was laughing. He was with his friends and he sat down to play some poker for a little bit. Now, in terms of his level of intoxication that night, people said that Josh definitely was noticeably tipsy, but he was not incoherent. He was able to walk. He was able to talk. He was understanding his surroundings. So while he was drinking and definitely not sober, he had not crossed the line of being belligerent or a messy drunk or anything of that sort. So then after about 45 minutes of being at this party... Josh got up from the poker table 
and walked out the door. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So this is where things take a turn. After about 45 minutes of being at this party, Josh is sitting down, he's playing poker, when all of a sudden, Josh gets up from the table without saying anything to anyone turns around and walks out the door of the apartment. And that quite literally is the last time that he was seen. Like I said, when he got up from the poker table, he didn't say anything to anyone. He just got up and walked out the door. Now, other people who were at the party said that when this happened, it wasn't concerning to them. It wasn't weird because the bathroom and the front door were located pretty much right next to each other. So when Josh was walking in the direction of the door, most people just figured that he was going to the bathroom, not that he was walking out of the apartment completely. And like I said, he didn't say anything to anyone. He didn't talk to anyone on his way out. He really just snuck out so quietly that no one even noticed that he left until about 30, 45 minutes later. And when that happened, all of a sudden, his friends just kind of looked at each other and realized that Josh was no longer there. And according to his friends, this behavior was very much unlike Josh. Josh was not the type of person to just get up and walk out without saying goodbye to anyone. Now, during the first day of the investigation, police brought in tracking dogs to track Josh's scent, and the dogs led police to the pathway that Josh and his friends would have had to take in order to get from Josh's apartment to the apartment where the poker party was at. Now, a part of that pathway is a bridge that stands over a lake called Stump Lake, located on St. John's Road. And it was actually on this bridge where the dogs stopped tracking Josh's scent. So they tracked it from Josh's apartment to the apartment of the poker party, then all the way back onto that bridge, the same way he would have had to take to get back to his apartment. But instead of tracking his scent all the way back to his apartment, the dogs stopped tracking it right on that bridge. And just to give you a visual of what this bridge looks like, I told you that it was over Stump Lake, but it was also a bridge where cars would drive on. So it was also a road as well. There were also walkways on the bridge. So little sidewalks on each side where students would walk from one side to the other. So this was a very common pathway that students would take. It was well lit. It was not some weird creepy bridge that had no light that no one would ever go on. This was something that was very popular, very populated. You had cars constantly driving on this bridge. So everyone was very familiar with it. 
Now, interestingly enough, shortly into the investigation, police were actually approached by two students, one from St. John's and one from St. Benedict's. So you had a guy and a girl who approached police and told them that at around 12.15, 1230 a.m. on the 10th, they were walking on the bridge. These two students explained that they were walking towards the direction of the poker party. They weren't going to the poker party, but that's the direction that they were walking in. And while they were walking, they ended up crossing paths with a guy who matched Josh's description. And a couple moments after these students and this guy who was presumed to be Josh crossed paths and are continuing walking in their opposite directions, the students say that for whatever reason, they turned around to look behind them. And this was just moments later. But when they turned around to look behind them, that man was no longer there. And that was just in a matter of seconds. They didn't hear anything. They didn't see anything. They saw him one second and then the next second he was gone. And like I said, because police are confident that that person was more than likely Josh, that would make the students citing the last known time that Josh was ever seen. Now, once this investigation really took off, there were multiple search parties. The National Guard got involved. They brought in search dogs. There were people on horseback searching through ravines, searching through the lake. But every single time, they came up with nothing. Now, something interesting that did come to the public's attention very shortly after the investigation had began was that Josh's disappearance was not the only one that had occurred in the nearby area in that time frame. In fact, at the time that Josh went missing, there were several other male college students that had gone missing throughout Minnesota. They all had very similar circumstances with going missing at night. They were all around the same age. It was pretty much all the same M.O. So when the public started to learn about this, it brought up the idea that could there possibly be a serial killer on the loose who is abducting college-aged men? A student named Chris Jenkins had disappeared after a Halloween party on October 31st, 2002 at the Lone Tree Bar and Grill in downtown Minneapolis. Then, six days later, a 22-year-old named Michael Knoll also went missing after celebrating his birthday at a bar called The Nasty Habit in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is about an hour and a half from where Chris went missing. So you have October 31st, Chris goes missing, November 6th, Michael goes missing, then several days later on November 10th, Josh goes missing as well. Now St. John's is about a two and a half hour drive from Eau Claire where Michael went missing and only an hour and 15 minutes from where Chris went missing. Now, Michael and Chris's bodies were both recovered. Chris was found in the Mississippi River in February of 2003, and his cause of death appeared to be a drowning. Now, Michael's body was also found in a lake. His body was discovered after someone spotted him in Half Moon Lake after it had been frozen over and his body was seen underneath the ice. Half Moon Lake is in Milltown, Wisconsin, but weirdly enough, Milltown is about an hour and a half away from Eau Claire. So how he got there and it got into the lake is obviously unknown. However, his cause of death was also ruled a drowning. So you have Chris, whose cause of death is a drowning, Michael, whose cause of death is also a drowning. 
So because of all of the similarities that people had already put together in regards to these three cases, the fact that Chris's body was found in a lake, Michael's body was found in a lake, it led people to question and believe that it would be very possible that if Josh had been killed, that his body could be in a lake as well. So because of that, police did an entire search of Stump Lake. They put divers in there. They had people in boats and kayaks. Everyone was searching. They had cameras down in the water. They did the whole nine yards. And they were really on a tight time frame because of the time of year that this was. They knew that in a couple short weeks, this lake was going to be frozen over. So they wanted to completely search it from top to bottom before that happened. However, every time that they searched that lake, they came up with nothing. And ultimately, it was concluded by police that Chris and Michael's disappearances were not connected to Josh's. So now this brings us to the end of December of 2002, and there was a new bloodhound dog that was brought into the investigation and organized through Josh's family. Brian, Josh's dad at this point, was getting a little bit frustrated in the investigation because he just felt like there was no answers. He felt like they weren't getting any closer to finding Josh. It just felt like a never-ending cycle. It felt like they were continuing to go in circles, and so Josh's family organized for a new blood hound to be brought into the investigation. Now, bloodhounds are known to be able to pick up scents weeks and months after a victim has gone missing, so they're very resourceful when it comes to these kind of things in these types of investigations. So when the bloodhound was sent out to trace Josh's scent, they found his scent at the apartment where the poker party was at. The bloodhound then traced the scent to the bridge over Stump Lake It then traced the scent back to Josh's apartment, which the original dogs had not done. Again, the original dogs had just stopped at the bridge on Stump Lake. So this bloodhound is now tracing the scent all the way back to Josh's apartment, but it didn't stop there. The bloodhound then traced Josh's scent all the way to St. John's Abbey, which is not somewhere that had been searched before. Now, if you're unfamiliar, because I certainly was, an abbey is a religious building. It is where monks will often live. It is where priests will go and study and practice masses. And the St. John's Abbey was located on campus. So in a nutshell, that is what an abbey is. And again, I'm probably not the best person to be explaining what an abbey is, but from my understanding and from the research that I did, that is, you know, again, in a nutshell, what that is. However, the St. John's Abbey was a little bit different because the St. John's Abbey was actually under a lot of scrutiny at this particular point in time because a lot of the monks that lived in the abbey were professors at the university. And what's unsettling about this and what's unsettling about Josh's scent being traced back to the abbey is that there were a lot of rumors going around about St. John's Abbey. And this wasn't just something that was stirring around the rumor mill on campus. This actually became local news and legal action was taken. There were accusations of molestation and sexual assault coming from the St. John's Abbey. 
Between the years of 1981 through 1986, there were actually four civil lawsuits filed against a monk at St. John's Abbey for sexual abuse. And that one monk was accused of more than two hundred sexual encounters. But even though it was in the 80s, the abuse had allegedly continued for years and years and was allegedly kept quiet and silenced by the administration at St. John's. Now, according to Josh's roommate, Nick, he claims that before Josh had disappeared, him and Josh had had conversations about the rumors surrounding the Abbey. And Nick said that Josh was very upset about the rumors and upset that the university was allegedly trying to cover up sexual abuse. Now, according to Brian, Josh's dad, he believed that Josh had been doing research into the allegations surrounding the Abbey and was actually planning on writing a research paper about it. Now, when police went through Josh's computer, they weren't able to find anything that indicated that Josh had been researching the Abbey or doing a research paper on the Abbey, so they had no evidence to prove that that would be true. However, according to Josh's friends, Josh was very upset by what was happening at the Abbey. So when the bloodhound traced Josh's scent back to the Abbey, it brought up the question of did Josh go over to the Abbey that night and more so why? Josh was in the middle of a poker party with his friends. So why would it make sense for him to up and leave and go straight over to this Abbey? Was he planning on meeting someone there? Was he planning on sneaking around in there and seeing what was really going on if he was planning on doing some sort of research paper? It just brought up a lot more questions. And when police told the administration at the university that Josh's scent had been found at the Abbey, they asked for permission because they needed permission to go inside of the Abbey and bring the bloodhound inside to sniff around and see if the bloodhound could pick up Josh's scent from inside of the Abbey. Because right now this is all just from the outside. And at first the university actually denied access to this. They did not want that bloodhound going inside, which again, still just raised more questions than it did answers. For lack of a better term, it just made them seem more sketchy that they weren't willing to let the bloodhound go in and search the inside of the abbey. But a few days later, the administration at the university did contact police and told them that it was okay. And they now did have permission again, several days later to go in and search inside of the building. And when the bloodhound was brought in, it did mark that Josh's scent was inside of that building. However, police searched top to bottom and they were not able to find any other indication that Josh was in that building. There was no physical evidence. The only other evidence that they had was that the bloodhound had pointed out the scent. So his scent was found outside of the abbey and inside of the abbey. However, that was all that was found so at this point in the timeline, we are now in spring of 2003. It has been months since Josh was last seen. And in the spring of 2003, after the ice had melted from the lake, police were finally able to rule out the theory that Josh was in the lake. 
They wanted to wait till spring to rule this theory out because they wanted the ice to melt and thought that if Josh was in the water, that by that point, the natural gases in his body would kick in and allow his body to float to the surface. So they would be able to ultimately see him at that time. However, when spring 2003 rolled around and Josh's body still was not found in the lake, They brought in another round of dive experts. They did the whole search of the lake all over again from front to back, and they ultimately were able to conclude that they did not believe that Josh was in the lake. And because of that, because they were able to rule out a theory, it really allowed them to hone in on the fact that they believed that Josh was met with foul play at the time of his disappearance. And this is when police began talking to Josh's friends and the people that were closest to him to learn more about Josh's social circle, to learn more about who his friends were, who he was hanging out with, what was going on at that time of his life. And through talking to some of Josh's friends, in particular, the ones that he went to the party with that night, police learned that right before Nick had left at around 7 p.m. to go over to Katie's apartment, that Josh and Nick had actually gotten into a little bit of an argument. And this argument was over Katie. Now, Nick and Katie have since come forward and admitted and said that there was an attraction to each other. They were attracted to each other. They did have a little bit, it was kind of like just a fling. It wasn't anything serious. They had discussed the potential of a relationship. However, they decided ultimately that the two of them were better off as just friends. It's, it's very sticky. And according to Nick, the two of them had kissed on one or two occasions. However, ultimately again, decided that it was better if they remained friends and didn't cross over into being in a romantic relationship. Now, obviously, as you can imagine, this is the girl that Josh has dated for about four and a half years and has known for even longer than that. And as you can imagine, that would probably make Josh a little bit upset. And does that mean that what Katie and Nick did was so wrong? I mean, personally, I wouldn't do it. But again, it doesn't mean that they're involved in this whatsoever. It's just, again, a kind of stickier piece to this puzzle. Now, both Nick and Katie were open to talking to the police and they were open in their interviews about their weird kind of like friends with benefits relationship that was going on. And for the most part, their stories were consistent with each other. However, there was one piece of it that was not, and that was the timeline. According to Nick, he had said from the very beginning that he got home at around 2.30 in the morning. His key card for his apartment had actually showed that he opened his apartment door at 2.42 a.m. And just for clarification purposes, each specific key card, access card to get in is personalized to each individual person. So it's not like everyone who lives in the same building has the same key card or even everyone that lives in the same apartment has the same key card. Each key card is individualized for each specific person. So that's why police were able to tell that it was Nick who opened the door at 2.42 a.m. However, in Katie's statement to police, she told them that Nick left the apartment at around 1, 1.30 a.m. So that is a whole hour before Nick claimed that he went home. 
So because of that, that's over an hour of time that's unaccounted for, and it brought a lot more questions into the picture, especially when you look at you know, the diagram of what's going on in this social circle. It definitely brought up a lot more questions. And when police confronted Nick about the discrepancies in the timeline, he stuck to his story. He didn't say, you know, oh, I forgot I did this instead, or, you know, oh, I, you know, went somewhere else. He didn't say that. He strictly stuck to the story that he still left at 2.30, regardless of what Katie had told them. Now, Nick had been asked by police to take a polygraph test, and he did agree initially to take the test. However, when it came time to actually schedule and take the test, he backed out and told police he wasn't going to do it because it wouldn't do anybody any good. Nick went on to say that there's a reason that polygraph tests aren't admissible in court and it would just be wasting everyone's time to be taking a test, which there is truth to that. You know, polygraph tests aren't admissible in court for a reason. They're not always reliable. They're not always accurate. Is it a little weird? Yeah, it's a little strange considering, you know, looking at this from a bigger picture perspective. Do I think it's strange? Yes, but you can let me know. So now moving on from that, police started to look at the people that Josh was at the party with and learned that they really had to take everything with a grain of salt, meaning that everyone at the party was saying that they didn't see what happened to Josh. Josh just upped and walked away. He didn't say anything when he left. Everyone was being very tight-lipped about the entire situation, which ultimately led police to believe that more than likely there's someone or multiple people at that party who have more information than they're willing to tell. However, police believe that because these are college students with goals and aspirations, that they don't want to put themselves in the middle of an investigation. Now, just to be clear, police don't believe that anyone at the party was actually involved in Josh's disappearance. It's more so just coming forward with information on the timeline, information on his behavior, information on if he said anything. And according to Josh's family, as well as the police, they believe that there were just a lot of half-truths being thrown in here. But again, they don't believe that anyone at the party was actually involved in the disappearance because even though it was a small gathering, out of 10 to 12 people, after they've been interviewed multiple times, if there was something that was being covered up or hidden, someone would have slipped up along the way. So everyone at the party was really never considered a person of interest at all. So now let's switch gears and talk about Josh's computer. When police had initially searched Josh's room in the first day of the investigation, just hours after he had been reported missing, police did not take anything out of his room, meaning they did not lock his room up as a potential crime scene. They did not take anything for potential evidence. His clothes were still in there. His bed was still in there. His wallet, his keys, his computer, everything was still left in his room. Now, because of that, after about two weeks of Josh being missing, 
Brian, Josh's dad, decided that he was going to go up to the campus to Josh's room and remove his belongings. He said that he didn't want Josh's stuff just laying there and just sitting there for anyone to go in and access. He felt it was very invasive. It was very intrusive and just didn't want that to even be a possibility, which is completely understandable. So he went up and he removed Josh's belongings or the majority of them, which included his computer. Now, a few weeks after that, police had contacted Brian and asked him if they could retrieve the computer to search through it to see if there were any potential evidence on it. Now, Brian willingly handed the computer over to police, and when he did that and police got a hold of it and started going through it, they learned that there had been a program installed onto the computer. The program that was installed onto the computer was what's called an internet washing program. And police were able to figure out that it was downloaded several days after Josh's disappearance. Now, the program, like I said, was an internet washing program. And essentially what that does is it deletes files from the hard drive. So it can delete search history, it can delete documents, it can delete pretty much anything you want it to delete. And when they found this internet washing program, they also were able to determine that this was the first time that that program or anything like it had been installed onto Josh's laptop. Now it's interesting when you look at the timeline because Brian, Josh's dad, didn't go and get the computer until two weeks later. So it wasn't him that had downloaded the internet washing program. It had to be someone who had access to Josh's room and his belongings that would go in and download something like this. But what was frustrating about that to police was that they were not able to figure out who that person was. All they knew was that it had to be someone who had access to Josh's room. What was also frustrating is that they were not able to recover or see what specific files were deleted. So not only do they have this internet washing program downloaded, they don't know who downloaded it and what they deleted. So again, more questions than answers. So now we're going to fast forward a couple years. Now we're going to move to 2008. And before this, nothing had really changed in the investigation. Now in 2008, Josh's hard drive was taken to the Criminal Bureau of Apprehension. Obviously, between 2003 and 2008, there were a lot of advances in technology and a lot more tools to try and decipher what was really going on here and to try to see what they could recover from Josh's hard drive. And this is where things got a little interesting because when law enforcement looked into the computer, a lot of it was just your normal, typical stuff, a lot of schoolwork, sports stuff, things like that. But then things took a little bit of a turn when police found that Josh had several different accounts from something called Yahoo Personals. Now, Yahoo Personals is a dating site, pretty much. Again, this was 2003. There were no apps. There were nothing like that. You know, this was the very beginning of online internet dating, and actually in 2010, Yahoo Personals was taken over and bought by Match.com and merged with them. But at the time in 2002, Yahoo Personals was the dating site. And again, Josh was newly out of a relationship. He was trying to, you know, put himself back out there and he signed up for this dating site. But what's 
interesting about this and what caught police's attention was that there were three different accounts on this dating site. Now on this particular site, you had to create a username. So it wasn't like a profile where you had like your first and last name. It was more so a username. You could put your first and last name in it if you wanted, but it was kind of like an AOL username, so to speak. And so for Josh, the first account that he had on there, it had his first name in it. It included, you know, his picture. However, with the other two accounts, it became clear to police that Josh had allegedly been portraying himself as a girl in these other two accounts. So essentially, he was catfishing as a girl in these other two accounts. Now, police were able to recover the usernames of both of these accounts. The first one was CoochieCoo2002, and the other was Gwen Girl Big Jugs. Yes, you heard me right. So police find these other two accounts and it's clear to them that these accounts are portraying themselves as girls, as females. So when police see this and see that these two accounts were on Josh's computer, this computer was in Josh's room, it seemed to police that Josh could have potentially been trying to explore his sexuality. He had just gotten out of a very long-term relationship. He was putting himself out there again. And it is possible, however, it is alleged that he was trying to explore his sexuality by portraying himself as a female who was talking to other men. And again, because this was on Josh's personal computer that was located in Josh's room, it did lead police to believe that these accounts were run by Josh. This wasn't like someone who was coming in and you know signing on a different profile on the same website. That just didn't seem like the case here. Now, according to Josh's friends and family and his ex-girlfriend, Katie, everyone who knew Josh said that they never assumed or never thought that he was gay or a part of the LGBT community in any way. He just didn't ever talk about that. It just wasn't something that they thought was the case. However, is it possible that this was just something that Josh was keeping as a secret from his friends and family while he was trying to navigate? Yes, that is incredibly, incredibly possible. Now, seeing these accounts on Josh's computer gave police a little bit more of an insight onto what Josh was doing in his free time. However, this really also opened up a whole new door of theories to what could have possibly happened to Josh. And it wasn't the accounts themselves that worried police. It was more so what someone could have potentially done with the information that there was a guy pretending to be a girl on these online dating sites. Again, we are in the time frame of 2002. You have to remember that. So things were very much different. And if Josh was pretending to be a girl online and was talking to guys, it's very possible that he could have ran across the wrong person on these dating sites who would not be okay with talking to someone who was catfishing, pretending to be a girl on the internet. Now, going through the messages and what police were able to find, it didn't seem like Josh had ever met up with anyone from this site or was even planning to meet up with anyone from the site. However, there were a lot of just, you know, chats here and there in different chat rooms. 
But again, there was no evidence to prove that he had actually met up with anyone that he had been talking to. However, again, it just made police wonder and worry of did he end up meeting up with someone that night? So that was in 2008. And you're going to be very frustrated when I say this, but that is really where this case has come to a standstill. It's still over 20 years later. Josh, to this day, has not been found and no one has been able to figure out what had happened to him that night and the truth has never been revealed. Here's the thing about cases like this is that someone knows something. We say it all the time when we talk about unsolved cases, but it is so incredibly true. And especially in a case like this, someone knows something. In the cases where someone just ups and vanishes and quite literally disappears out of thin air, those are the cases where there is someone out there who knows what happened. Someone knows what happened to Josh. Someone knows where Josh went that night. And again, there are a lot of theories here. You have the theory that Josh fell into the lake and just to this day has not been found, even though police had concluded that theory to be not valuable. You have the second potential theory of Josh ending up at the Abbey at St. John's and coming across the wrong person in that Abbey. Now, Josh's mom, Lisa, truly believes she's come forward and said that if someone on that campus, including someone in the Abbey, is responsible for Josh's disappearance, more than likely she truly believes that he will never be found and the truth will never come out. And then you have the third theory of Nick. There is about a little bit of an hour time period that is unaccounted for. Is it possible that a fight had ensued and things got escalated? Then you have the theory of the computer, the the online dating, the things like that. It also brings up the question of who deleted the files and downloaded the internet washing program on Josh's computer. Again, there are just so many more questions than there are answers in this case, but I am so interested to hear what you guys have to say. In terms of what I think... I really don't know on this one, you guys. I think that all of these theories could potentially be plausible. If I had to choose, I think it's very possible that Josh could have gone to the Abbey. I think it's very possible that he either was meeting up with someone there or wanted to see what was going on there for himself. Do I think it's a little bit odd that he would get up and leave a party and just walk over to the Abbey out of nowhere? Yes, I feel like he more than likely was either planning to meet someone there or something was going on there. I don't think that he just got up from the party and walked straight to the Abbey because he just felt like it. I feel like that was either pre-planned or he was meeting someone there. Another theory that I really just can't get over is the theory about the friend Nick. Personally, in my opinion... I just feel like something is a little bit off there. I feel like having him be in this sticky situation with Katie, there was, an, a, there was a potential argument, there was a fight, there was an alleged hour of time that was unaccounted for. Someone went into Josh's room and deleted files from his computer. We will never know what those files were, which also brings up more questions. Is it potentially something combined? You know, could someone have deleted 
could someone have deleted documents of Josh doing research on the appy of his computer? I mean, there's just endless possibilities with this case. And I'm just really interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. But with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, again, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on Wednesdays on YouTube and all podcast platforms. You're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye, guys. Bye.